the blame game. Um, I like to teach. Um, yeah, don't worry about it. Um, I like to teach topics that um, I personally struggle with, and um, so I'm going to start with a story that um, I heard years ago, and I put it in the book, and it's uh, a story about the great Isaac Perlman, Yitzchak Perlman. You guys know who Yitzchak Perlman? He's a great violinist here with the New York Philharmonic, one of the great. I, 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 I did it. Thank you. And um, anyway, he was uh, not uh, Yitzhak Perlman, Isaac Stern. Sorry. Also another Jew, great um, musician who played with the New York Philharmonic. Anyway, he was midway through the first movement on some classical piece, and uh, he just had a lapse of memory. You ever think about that? Like how these guys just remember everything, they don't always have the sheet music in front of them, or just something. I don't know, just something stops. Nava, welcome. I'm sorry, we didn't say hello to you. How are you? <laughs> so, um, what does he do? He stops playing. He walks over to the conductor, and he asks if the orchestra can start over again. This is in front of a packed house, New York Philharmonic. And he turned to the very large audience. He got up, and he, which is unusual for a musician to just get up and speak. And he said... Um, he, he apologized, and he says, we're going to do it again. And it was a, there was a review in the, I don't know if it was the New York Times, it was in some major publication uh, that reviewed the performance and said, and I quote, this is from the review, a man of his ability could have fooled his audience, covered up his mistakes, and yet his faithfulness to Mozart and his music demanded of him a clear accounting of his error and a desire to start all over again. I just love that story because he was not afraid to say, I messed up, I made a mistake, I want to do it right, I'm going to try over again. And, um, you know, and he could have gotten away with it, by the way, because, and I've had this sometimes when I teach, where like I prepared something for class, I didn't do it, and then I realized no one really knows that I was supposed to do that, so I can just keep going, and that no one will be the wiser. But he wanted to really be sort of honest about the whole thing. And, uh, and that's really what I wanted to speak about. Uh, we like other people being honest. We're not always so good about being honest with ourselves. And some of us go to the other extreme and beat ourselves up way too much also. I think we suffer from both. Um, so I want to share a beautiful idea, a, a, a Torah teaching, from the late and great Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Those of you, you guys heard of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs? He was formerly the chief rabbi of Great Britain, passed away, unfortunately, during COVID. And he was a great, great scholar. And he basically looked at the book of Genesis that we just finished. Welcome. And uh, if you look at the whole book of Genesis that we just completed, we're starting this week, the new book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, it's blame game one after the next. Can anybody think of stories? Start at the beginning. Cain and Abel. Okay, Adam and Eve. It's literally blaming one thing after the next. When God came to Adam and said, why did you eat from the one tree I told you not to eat from? What was his answer? <laughs> he pointed to Shosh. He, he said it was her fault. Was it Eve's fault, by the way? Well, Eve did convince him to do it. But she did it, right? She did it too. Uh, well, what did Eve, when, when then Adam looked at Eve, what did Eve do? 
She looked at the snake. Everybody had somebody to blame. Now, the snakes in those days were like walking on, on, on both legs. It was like a little of a different snake situation than we have today. And um, welcome. You need a seat? Come, come, come. Okay, no problem. Oh, you know, you can just grab from right here if you don't mind. Thank you. So, Adam says Eve convinced him. Eve points to the snake. Cain, what did he do in the Torah? Cain kills his brother, Hevel. And what does God say when he asks him, where's your brother? He says, A Hevel Achicha, where's Hevel your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? By the way, he doesn't actually say that. He says something first, I don't know. Kama, am I my brother's keeper? Lo yadati, Which is a different ways of reading it. Uh, even Noach. What happened with Noach? What was Noach supposed to do? You guys remember the story with Noach and the flood? Noach, also, he takes responsibility for himself. But what does Noach fail to do? Noach was, supposed to, Noach was supposed to prevent the flood, not just save himself and his family in the flood. And it doesn't seem like he took much responsibility. Who's the first biblical personality who comes on the scene that takes responsibility? And it's no coincidence he's also the first, fill it in, he's the first Jew. And that's Abraham. Abraham, you see, taking responsibility for so much. Uh, any examples in Avraham's life? He's got a wayward nephew, Lot. Everybody's got like a nephew, like Lot, a little. And he goes off and he does. He, he moves to Sodom and he tells him, don't go to Sodom. He goes anyway. And what happens when he gets into trouble? He, he goes and rescues him. What happens after God says, the city of Sodom is corrupt? I'm going to destroy it? What does Avraham do? What, how does he argue with him? He starts making a deal. If you... Right, God said, fine, find me some righteous people and I won't destroy the city. So he starts looking around, starts bargaining with God. Okay, now he wasn't successful, but he tried. You see that bargaining with Noah? You don't see that in the Torah. You just see Noah clanking away at his ark, getting ready for this flood, but not doing much to prevent the other people from getting destroyed by the flood. Avram's all about other people and not externalizing the blame. And uh, Rabbi Sachs continues to say that in the past, in the, the ancients would blame their mistakes and their flaws on the stars, on the gods, on fate. We haven't progressed very much. We have our parents today. We have our therapists, or maybe our therapists are backing up the blaming on their parents. Uh, we, we have the environment, oh, my genes, uh, the school I went to, you know, like if I had been raised in this family, if I had, if, if, uh, we do the same thing. And Rabbi Sachs goes on to say that there were three influential thinkers, intellectuals, uh, in the 20th century that really brought this idea home philosophically. Uh, Benedict Spinoza, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud. Freud, very good. Think about each one of them. They did it in a different way. right? Each one attributed human behavior to what they believed was responsible for the actions and the decisions that people are making in their lives. What did Karl Marx, Marx believe? 
little communism for you. He said that everything is dictated by what? You don't have much free will. It's what's that? The bourgeoisie, the um, the what is it? The what's the upper class? The like everything is 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 all all social forces are 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 the product of a ruling class who are the owners of the property and who you know whether it's land, real estate, and you can boil down all of the decisions people make in life to power slash money. Um, and that's why he wanted to equalize everything. Spinoza was all into genetic predeterminism. He was a geneticist. And he believed and he wrote and he taught that man is ruled by his innate instincts, biological drives that we are given to us at birth, and we have little or no power over them. Sigmund Freud attributed most of our behaviors to what? What's that? Yeah, but specifically, when you're really, really young, if you studied Freud and studied some of his writings, your parents, and he believed that the personality was developed by the time the, the little boy or girl is five or six. And he did not believe that there was very much else you could do to change. All you have to do is try to get in touch with those childhood traumas that basically set you on a certain path in life. Um, he talked about the Oedipus complex, um, about the influence specifically of our fathers. And Rabbi Saxon goes on to say that when God told Abraham to leave, he was basically telling him to leave all of these different parts, all of these things behind. And he has a, he has a brilliant play on words from the verse in the Torah. What does God say to Avraham? Lech lecha, me'artzecha, go from your land, mimoladetcha, from your birthplace, umibet avicha, in the house of your father. Think about how those three things lined up with the three intellectuals of the 20th century. Right? He says, to each of these factors and influences, Rabbi Sachs said that the opening verse in the Parsha addresses, right? go from your land, who's the land addressing? Karl Marx, who attributed everything to property, class ownership, from your birthplace, who's that? The way you were born, your genetics, blaming everything on, okay, if I was smarter, if I was this, if I was that. And then finally, to leave the house of your father, he said that this was an attempt you know, he believes that, you know, God's underhanded way of saying, let me just close the door for tomorrow, thank you. Underhanded way of saying, leave your father's home. Your parents are important uh, influences, but are they the sole determinants of your behavior? And we love to point to socioeconomic factors, genetics, family upbringing, huge influences on the way we think and we behave, but when God said to Abraham, Lech Lecha, what did he say? Lech means to go. Lecha, go in your, from yourself. Right? right? That these factors play a role, but you can't use them as a crutch and blame your whole life on what your parents did when you were a kid. And by the way, I'm not trying to minimize, God forbid, the type of trauma that some children, my son in Israel works in a clinic, um, you know, for adolescents in Israel. And what these kids have been through, you know, is just really awful. 
But they're trying to work through it so that they can have a normal life and not say, well, when I was five years old, this happened to me. Um, and this is a very, very important lesson. Um, and and there, there was... Um, and, and by the way, it's coming out... I mean, does anyone sort of see this on a global level? This is not just happening on an individual level. But if you really believe you're part of an oppressed people all the time, you will remain a victim. And the world will see you that way, and you'll see yourself that right way, and it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And um, I, don't, I don't have to... You can fill in the blank right now. What, what, you know, I just... I did a little, it's not out yet, I did a little uh, reaction, one of these reaction Instagram things. I was listening to this gentleman speak about, uh, he was speaking to a Christian and Muslim audience about the Palestinian people. And he said that they were really um, the crucified of our generation. Now, the truth is, some of that's true, I believe. Factually, historically, Palestinian people have been extraordinarily victimized and are used. They're being used right now by Hamas. You can, I don't know if you get any of the reels, seeing what's going on. Um, but at some point, we have to take ourselves from being the victim and take some responsibility for our own actions. And um, the best people, anyway, to learn this from is not me. It's to spend a little time. My daughter is spending a lot of time. She visits twice a week the Holocaust survivor who lives just a few blocks from the seminary where she is in Jerusalem. This woman has had such an unbelievable impact on her because she was able to make a life for herself and for her family. It was despite, despite what she witnessed and having lost like almost her entire family. Um, now these are extraordinary people and maybe we don't expect that of everyone. But that's an important thing, you know, because otherwise what I'm saying just sounds like pie in the sky, of course, yeah. But we actually meet people. Now, I quoted Viktor Frankl the last week or the week before, who wrote that the Germans, he believed, were actually trying to prove this in the camps. That the Germans were trying to prove that you can take a human being, like an animal, expose the human being to certain stimuli, and control their responses. It was like some sort of, um, I don't know what the word is, reprehensible social experiment. And Viktor Frankl in his book, who, by the way, was a student of Freud, but he veered off. And there's all these stories of Viktor Frankl with Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, because Lubavitcher Rebbe loved the writings of Viktor Frankl because he believed so much in free will, which is something I want to share with you from the source in a minute. But... Um, Viktor Frankl said that every time a Jew in the camps uh, parted with their meager rations to help someone who was worse off, they proved the Nazis wrong. They proved that we are not animals and that we can still have free will even under the worst possible circumstances. We can still exert some kind of influence. Um, I, I shared this, I think, when we had our Hanukkah class. Because what happened? There was no more victimized of a people than in the Hanukkah story. The, the Greeks came along and they said, you want to stage, you know, either convert and become Hellenists or, or we're going to kill you. So what did they do? Third option. They created a third option. They revolted. 
you know, and I and, and try to I'm trying to give extreme examples so it, it allows us with lesser dramatic things going on in our lives, hopefully, to be able to say, you know what, I still have the ability to somehow not fully control. I, I don't think that's possible in most situations. We're not in we're not God. We can't fully control anything. But the part of the situation we can control, that's where we really express our humanity. And that's where we, according to the Torah, really reflect Hashem, who, who could do anything. And we are supposed to mimic God in having free will also. It's one of the most fundamental tenets of, um, of Judaism, is to believe that your life has not been planned out for you. You know, the Greeks believed in fate. And they believed in, like, you ever see, like, a Greek play? They're all, like, they just, the characters have to just sort of play out their destiny. They can't do anything about it. And that's a very not Torah idea. We don't believe that. We very much believe that we have the power uh, to control. And, getting back to our original point, as long as we continue to blame other people, our parents, our teachers, society, some other country. Um, and it, it's really one of the most extraordinary things right now in Israel. There's so many fingers that could be pointed by what happened on October 7th. And there's very little, I mean, relative to the catastrophe that was October 7th, there could be so much more finger pointing going on right now. And the only thing that most Israelis are doing is supporting the IDF's efforts to free the hostages and take out the bad guys. Um, but as long as we continue to blame other people and continue to look at ourselves as victims, we're never going to be able to do the necessary work to ultimately resolve the issues, whether they're national, international, or individual, personal, spiritual issues. I'm going to share an amazing study I put in the book. Um, it's a study conducted by the University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, we got two out of three. You know, we're waiting for MIT to go down, I guess. So, um, anyway, the University of Pennsylvania is years ago. They compared the top 1% of uh, neurosurgeons in America. It's a great study with the bottom 1%. Now, the top 1%, like, they're untouchable. It's, hard. it's like almost impossible to get a meeting with these to get them to operate. You have to wait months and months. The bottom 1%, not so much. Uh, you know, those are the guys getting sued for malpractice. Um, but the top 1% are like the leading researchers, the most sought-out physicians. Now, the study was trying to determine what is the most fundamental difference that's like a, correlated to their success. What's the big, what do you think is the biggest difference between the top 1% neurosurgeons in America and the bottom 1%? How much they're paid. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I, I don't mean, yeah, I mean, okay, you answered my question. Um, Meaning like, like a factor that went into that, because if you want to become a top neurosurgeon, so like maybe there's certain positive corollaries, 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 you know, things that we would want to like teach our kids when they're six, because like, oh, I want them to be a top neurosurgeon. What is it? <laughs> so it's not their level of intelligence. It's not the school. Sir. I thought that too. I thought it would be the level of intelligence. It's not the medical school they went to. What's that? Not morality. Well, it, t- it touches on morality. 
Yeah. How? What's that? Yeah, these are all good suggestions. I thought all of these things. Yeah. Oh. Now, well, they said the biggest thing is how they handled mistakes in the operating room. Yeah, yeah. decision-making, yeah. That was the number one dr- most dramatic difference between the bottom 1% and the top 1%. The top 1% spent every waking hour trying to figure out where they went wrong. They took responsibility, and they were like, how do I fix this? The bottom 1% blamed it on the nurses, <laughs> the tools, the hospital, the lighting... Everything but themselves. And that's hard, especially if, you know, something as dramatic as... But, you know, listen, we have defense mechanisms. Freud wrote about this, and he was, I think he was right. We have to live with ourselves. So if you constantly point the finger always at yourself, you're not going to be very happy with you. And that's not going to be a very pleasant life. So we have to think enough of ourselves, but at the same time, have a good enough sense of self that you can handle taking responsibility and saying it was my fault. Or maybe it wasn't my fault, but I still, it's not doing anyone any good to blame it. Like, you, I'm sure we've all been in a work situation where you know who made the mistake. So, like, how long does it take us to get over that? I, it takes me a little while, I'll be honest. If, like, something happened and I'm, like, I'm just too upset at the person, at the group, what were you thinking? But at some point, it's like, okay, we're, you're part of the team. So how do you just move on? I mean, this is happening in the IDF, in the, in the army. There are, unfortunately, people have been killed through friendly fire. And well, what do you do then? You know how destructive it could be if people just, just come out against each other? It's unfortunately the price of war. And it's the price of any business. It's just... Now, there, there's a level. If it's happening too much... <laughs> You know, God forbid, or the business is just, you know. But I saw the same thing. I was on the phone last night for over two hours with a couple. I'm trying to help them save their marriage. And it's just it's just so difficult to get either of them to... Because there's no such thing, and I've learned this, not only from my own marriage, but I've learned this in whatever counseling that I've done in trying to help couples over the years... There's no such thing as one person with a problem. That person's problem might be the uh, maybe the most fundamental thing, but it's the way the other person's handling it and dealing with it. There's a dynamic. And if each person in the relationship can't see how they're contributing to the dynamic, how they are somehow part of the problem, you can't fix the problem. And a lot of, I, I don't say a lot, I don't know, but I would probably assume that there were some marriages that could have been saved if people were a little more honest with themselves. Now, there was another couple I was counseling recently as well that, um, you know, I mean, this, this was very sad. They both totally came out with, like, this is what I did wrong. This is what I, you know. But the problem wasn't really in their interactions with each other. They were really probably never meant to be, which yeah. was kind of sad for them both to sort of come to that conclusion. That happens too. You know, um, you can't fix every problem. But um, saying it was my fault is a very hard thing to do, but it's literally the only way to grow from a situation. Um, And um, I have a cute little story that I threw in here also, but I want to share 
I want to just share an idea. It's okay, you don't need this source. Uh, any comments or questions, please, because I'm just babbling here. I mean, you can disagree or um, want to share anything or anything. Open up conversation. Welcome, guys. <laughs> um, I mean, you're talking about accountability, right? It's accountability. It applies at work. It applies at home. Um, I've said this to so many people who've worked at MG over the years, like, Something's going to go wrong. You're going to make a mistake. And the most important thing is to is for us to know where we went wrong so we can fix it. If somebody's covering it up or pointing the finger at someone else. It just keeps the company from... Uh, this is sort of like industrial psychology 101. It keeps the company from fixing the problem. You know, because someone's trying to save face and they don't want to, you know... Um, that's why it's great. I'm not saying we have this necessarily, but it's great if a company has a culture where some mistakes are tolerated because then people are, are less apt to lie or, um, you know, make believe it wasn't them who did it. People are afraid to speak up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, it happens in relationships. There's another couple. I'm, <laughs> I'm talking to a lot of couples. Right now, not engaged, not married yet. And uh, he has a certain issue with her. And she won't talk about it because every time she speaks it, about it and she brings it up, it's something with her family that's putting him off. He, like, pulls back. So I said, well, you know, you're disincentivizing her, to be honest. If you don't make her feel okay about the issue, she's not going to want to talk about it. You're not going to be able to resolve it. So it's like, it's, it's this catch-22. And, they, they, and they love each other. They, like, want to make this work. But I said, your job is to make, is to somehow convince her that it's okay, that you won't fire her, so to speak. You're not going to run away, um, you know, when, when she talks about it. So that, and that's, that's hard. You know. Um, but the problem is, a lot of this does come down to a little theology. And the question is, do you really believe that you can get yourself out of these things and that you have the free will to do this. So I want to share with you a teaching of the Rambam, the great Maimonides, who said, they have it there in the English. I'm sorry, I didn't bring it for everyone else, but you'll, you'll just trust me. So the Rambam, um, this is a bit of a polemic. You guys know who the Rambam was, Maimonides? Um, yeah. So Maimonides lived in uh, Spain and then Egypt. Um, and he believed in free will and he was arguing against a group of people called the predeterminists that's the way it sounds in English it doesn't sound as cool in English who are the predeterminists? the fatalists do you guys know what a fatalist is? what's a fatalist? what do you think? what's that? <laughs> yeah, a little. Everything that happened to us is predetermined. What's that? Yeah, everything is predetermined, you know, and people ask this question if God knows everything, He knows what you're going to choose, hasn't He really, you know, so Maimonides deal, is dealing with that. And that kind of philosophy really ends you up with, like, what's the point? Nihilism? It's a little nihilism. It ends up with that a little. Not always. Because there are people who don't believe in free will. Um, and the Rambam was reacting to that group of people in his generation. He says the following. 
He says, Rishut l'chol adam netuna. He says, permission has been given to everyone. If a person wants to follow a certain a good path and become a righteous person, he can do this. And if a person wants to go in the opposite direction, he can do this as well. Where do you see that in the Torah? When God created man, he turned to his angels. And he said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, This man will be like us. Who's God speaking to when he says, this, this people that I'm about to create, they're going to be like us? In that what? They will be able to tell the difference between tov, what's tov, good, and ra is bad. Okay. Um, that this will be the only species I create, right? the animals were already in the world, there's no other species similar to man, that a person themselves can know what is good and what is bad. Now I'm struggling with this because everyone keeps asking and everyone wants to believe, as I do, that there's a major distinction between Hamas and the people living in Gaza. And the, what's clouding it for me is, statistically, it's probably not as true as we think, but how much do you hold, I don't know, a five or six-year-old who's been trained to hate Jews and to fight and attack Jews since he's three, four, or five? It's in his cartoon book. It's on TV. It's all the videos he watches. It's what his parents and teachers teach him. It's what his friends are saying. So I don't know, I'm really, I'm struggling with this. I, I, um, do, do you say that that person now, if the person's holding a gun, and God forbid is aiming a gun at your head, then you have no choice but to take them out, to defend yourself. But do we throw them into that whole mix and say they're no different than Hamas? Because a lot of the guys fighting in Hamas right now were raised that way. Now, that was an argument made at the Nuremberg Trials. Uh, and it was very similar to what was happening in Nazi Germany. Uh, what children are being taught in school about Jews and about other ethnicities, but primarily Jews. And they tried arguing this. And um, they, it didn't hold up. Now, maybe it's because they were speaking to grown adults with PhDs. Almost everyone that was hung at Nuremberg Every, not almost. Everyone hung at Nuremberg had either a PhD or was a medical doctor. Hitler surrounded himself with brilliant minds. And they were, they were brainwashed. And you see that now. You know, and I think it's a very important thing for us to acknowledge that just because somebody goes to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton doesn't mean that they can't be brainwashed. You just, you know, you don't even have to deprive people of information anymore because no one's looking at the information and they get exposed to a certain whatever it is you watch on TikTok these days and you're good to go. So this is a, this is a struggle I'm having. I'm, I'm happy to entertain this conversation <laughs> with anyone because it's, um, yeah, sure. I always think about this because when we get to a point where we do have a ceasefire, Mm -hmm. how many generations will it take to reverse 
the uh, learning that was taught to people who do paint mm-hmm. in all sides of Israel and Gaza and the West. Yeah. It's their, it's their teachers, their yeah. educators, their parents, and you have this a child, so they go through a system and what happens to their children? Right. So when we do get to a point where there's a halt in fighting, how do you change minds? The only way to change minds is to... Leadership. Is to change the leadership, and um, and to really start convincing and getting Jews and Muslims to sit down, Jews and Palestinians to really sit down and get to know each other. Right. It's not going to change it. The reason now I'll give you some good news. First of all, we've seen it in our own generation. Which European country has been the most supportive of Israel since the beginning of this war? Germany. Mm-hmm. So in seventy-five years, Germany changed. It can happen. Um, it's also happening with Israeli Arabs. I interviewed on my podcast, you guys should listen to this yeah. interview, you, you listened? Um, Yahya, I forgot his last name, grew up just like this, very independent thinking, he's maybe 26, 27 years old, very articulate, uh, he's a Muslim Arab Palestinian who comes, most of his family lives in the West Bank, he grew up in Gaza, he's fighting in the IDF now, he's fighting for the IDF. And he, his mother had to come disguised. His mother was proud that he joined the IDF, believe it or not. And she came to the Tekes. She came to his ceremony, his graduation ceremony. And um, he's amazing. He's just an amazing guy. Now, how many people... I asked him, how many are there like you? How do we clone you? What's that? It's tiny. He said to me that there are 5,000 minority, and there, of which 1,000 are Muslim... But that includes uh, the Druze. He's said about 30. Is he Christian? No, he's, he's Muslim. Is he Bedouin? No, he's not Bedouin. There are a lot of Bedouins like that. And, and, and more Druze. I mean, Druze fighting along Israel. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'm curious how he was... So I asked him. It, it was an hour conversation. Listen to it. Okay. Because... Um, the bottom line, I want you, it's a little teaser for you to watch the episode. <laughs> but um, he, he had a job in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. And he got to know Israelis. He also had a very interesting encounter with a Chabad rabbi who tried getting him to put on tefillin. He thought he was Jewish. Mm-hmm. It was kind of cute. Um, and uh, um, you listen to the whole thing. And he's doing outreach now for the IDF. I mean, he's unbelievable. And he's doing it mostly in Sunni states. And I was like, you know, he goes to Saudi Arabia. And I was like, that's great. There's probably still a lot of anti-Semitism. At least our leadership is changing. Why don't you do it in Egypt and um, Jordan or in Gaza? <laughs> you know? Now, why do you think he's... It's too dangerous. So that has to change. No. No. But there are a lot of Israeli Arabs that are friends with Jews and Jews with Israeli Arabs. It is kind of working to some degree. It's not perfect. But there, is, there are two million Israeli Arabs living in Israel. And I know a lot of people are nervous, like a fifth column, and, and there have been some attacks from them. But by and large, you know. Um, so, so anyway, the, but the Rambam says that there's no such thing as... The Rambam is teaching that in Judaism we believe you have free will to change your mind. But that's the real question here, right? Like, 
I was, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking about Abraham, Abraham, and like as Jews, the narrative is like he's so amazing because he discovered God and monotheism, and that is true. But what I think is more amazing is just that he challenged the status quo. And so when I look at Nazis or Hamas, I feel sorry for these people so much because I'm like, it's not that your humanity is lost because you're doing evil things. It's like, where's the you? Everyone is so willing to, to remove their own story, their own mark on society and just be swept up in a... They're afraid. A lot of them are afraid. Okay, now, okay, fine. Right. Like, you know... And I, and it's its own thing, but I'm right. just saying in general, like, we're talking about accountability, right? right. So, are not, I mean, I'm biased, I, I grew up with Torah, and I grew right. up hearing about this idea of free will constantly, but is the rest of the world so quick to not recognize the power that they have as a, each person has as an individual? Th- that's unfortunately the way the world in academia has been going the last 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. This is not just about Hamas and Israel. Right. This is about not really believing because the more evolutionary biology continues to try to explain everything, the more you start believing that everything is, you're just pre-programmed, like an animal. Stimuli, response, stimuli, response. Mm-hmm. And we got to get out of that. That's really what the Rambam is teaching. I saw, and it, yeah. I saw an article, in, uh, you know, when you, swipe, when you look at uh, Apple News, and one of the top articles, maybe a couple months ago, was, there is no free will, Stanford scientists right. it. Like, it's becoming like... It's been going, by the way, I have an article from the, in the New York Times Science Edition from almost 20 years ago like that. Really? It's been developing, and it's gaining more and more traction. And, and it's one of the reasons, I think, people, I believe, are so sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, because I don't think people believe anymore that you can change and you can break out of your bubble. Yeah. Now, and the, and the statistics are racked against us because you're like... You just said about asserting your individuality. Right, so if you come from a family where everybody's a lawyer, let's say. Okay, so this is like a much more mild example. Okay, you're more likely to go into law. But do you have to go into law? No, you don't. But let's say you're not exposed to anything else. Do you have to? No, you still don't have to. You still could figure it out. Okay? But it's much less likely. You have to really be your own person. And, but, but if you fundamentally don't believe that we're hardwired with that ability and you think that we're just mechanically ordained like animals are, okay, then you're not going to do that. And that has been part of the intellectual... Not, not everyone believes this. Not all scientists believe that. A lot of scientists do believe in free will. But you know, in, in, in psychology also, that's the way the world of psychology has been, which is that we are just products of our environment. We don't even talk about what we can do to overcome that, how we can change that. You know, we don't have to, you know, say, oh, but how many, what percentage of, of, of divorced children, you know, children who are coming from divorced families, they get divorced. More. It's more likely we'll be divorced. Is it inevitable? As long as it's not inevitable, as long as there's a sliver of hope that you can break that cycle or of abuse or whatever the negative trait is, and Torah believes very much, if you walk away from this with anything, that, that, that's, that's the Torah idea. Now, Maimonides is a little extreme on this. Listen to what he says. 
He says, do not allow this idea to come into your mind. This thing that the tipshe umota olam, a tipesh is a fool. The tipshim, the, the fools of the nations of the world, the rov Israel, and the majority of the unlearned of Israel, Jew and non-Jew, are believing in this. That watch, HaKadosh Baruch that God decrees when a person is born that this dude, he'll be a tzaddik, and this guy will be a rasha. Tzaddik is a, a righteous person, and rasha is an evil person. It's not true, he said. He says, every human being can be as much of a tzaddik as Moshe, or as evil as Yeravam, or Chacham, or Sachal, or Rachman, or Achzari. A person can be merciful, or they can be cruel. All of it, he starts going through all of these different character traits. You are not hardwired to do anything. Now, so what, what do you mean? What about the family? Influences. When did a, some, an influence go to become a soul determinant? That's the distinction we have to, we got to play around with it and, and sort of celebrate that gap between the determinant, the influence and the determinant. There is a difference. And now, I'll bring something up and we'll finish with this in a minute. Talmud seems to, on the surface, contradict this a, a little. Because the Talmud tells a story about this angel. And the angel is called Lila. And the angel of Lila comes before God with a tipa. If you want to see the Talmud, it's in uh, the tractate of Nida 17b. 16b. And a drop. And Rashi says it's a drop of sperm. And the angel takes this drop of sperm, comes before God and says, Tipa zu matehe aleha. This drop, what will become of it? Like, how will this person grow up? Gibor or chalash, strong or weak? Chacham or tipesh, smart or foolish? Ashir or ani, rich or poor? Now, if I stop the Talmud right there, we'd have a big problem. What's our problem? What does this seem to imply? Black and white. What's that? Oh, forget that a minute. Okay. It, it, it could have been uh, an egg. It, was, it, it doesn't really matter so much. What's that? It seems like there's no free will. For what? Well, it doesn't seem like this person has any free will to what? Well, what are the things? To become weak or strong. Weak or strong. What were the other things? Fool or smart or? Rich or poor. What, what didn't he ask? Good or bad is not asked. And that's what the Gemara, that's the answer to this. The angel never asks God, will this person, will this drop of sperm, which will fertilize the egg and turn into a person, will that person become a righteous person or a wicked person? Why? Because everything is in God's hands except for the fear of God. What does that mean? that a lot is in Hashem's hands. We really can't change very much the way we look, our IQ, how much money we make, to some degree, is predetermined to some degree. We like to think, you know, the American rags to riches, you know, but, and there are certainly notable exceptions. You know, a lot of Jews came to this country without a penny in their pocket, and they made it big. 
But generally speaking, most rich people in the world started out that way. Or they were put on a certain trajectory by their families. Exceptions, there are notable exceptions, of course. And, you know, you could tweak the way you look, and you could tweak how, how strong or not so strong you are, and you could tweak your intelligence. But at the end of the day, a lot of that is genetics. And that's just from God, we believe. So when the, when the angel says, you know, will this person be this, will this person be that? So is that stripping the person of their free will? We have been stripped of our free will, but in regard to what? We've been stripped of our free will in regard to the circumstances of our lives. The deck of cards we've been dealt. That we can't really do much about. I can't, you know, I, was, I grew up in Queens, New York in the 70s. That's it. No matter what I do in my life, I cannot change that. My mother was of European descent. My father was from a hook town in Pennsylvania. That's what I got. <laughs> okay? Um, but, what matters as far as Judaism is concerned? Where my parents came from? Where I, where I was raised? How much money I have? What I look like? How strong or not so strong? How smart or not so smart I am? What's important in life? is to be a good person. is to act morally. is to be able to reflect God's will in the world. That's what it means to be a good Jew, is to express godliness, holiness in the world. That does, that's not affected by the way I look or how much money. Now, I might be able to do it a little differently. If I have more money, I can give more charity. And if I look like this, I can go up in front of that. And if I come from this family, I can try this. But at the end of the day, I still have free will because the one thing that really matters is my ability to decide what to do with a deck of cards. I once heard this from Esther Young, where I said, blessed memory. She ran an organization here on the west side called Hineni. I used to go to her lectures. She was amazing. And she said, it doesn't matter if you're a, a doctor or a lawyer or a cab driver. I mean, probably to many Jewish parents, it probably really matters if you're a doctor or a lawyer. She said, it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, lawyer, or cab driver. It matters what kind of doctor, what kind of lawyer, what kind of cab driver. That's what we get evaluated on. And that's where we have free will. So stuff's going to happen that you and I cannot control, like who our parents are and what, how they raised us. We didn't have much say over that. Okay, and please God, one day your children won't have much say over it either. And hopefully you won't mess them up too badly. Right? But at the end of the day... We're not evaluated by the way our parents raised us. Now, that makes a big difference in my personal life in terms of happiness. But real happiness, I've always tried to argue, and that's what this whole book is about. Real happiness comes from living a life of meaning and purpose. By living a life that's morally upright, according to some system that's beyond us, that's called the Torah. And that we have 100% free will how to do that, no matter what your circumstances and it's obviously it's harder if you have worse circumstances in life. It makes it easier to keep the Torah if everything is okay. Harder to keep Shabbos. So a, a reel of the soldiers in Israel. We're not going to be able to do much Shabbos. They, they put on their iPhones. They sent it out. If you can keep Shabbos for us, keep us in mind. Because we can't, you know, they did a little praying and then they had to go fight. Right? So they can't do that. And that's why one of the things we daven for. We say to Hashem, give us a good life. Not just so we could have a good life, so that we could live an upright life. And that it's a pleasant life to live upright because the circumstances. But it's not about the deck of cards. 
How could you be evaluated by something over which you have no control? But but it, it is the opposite of Jews, but even within a awful feudalistic I mean that's why we have such a great history. Because if you talk to your bubbies and Zadies and they spoke to their bubbies and Zadies and they spoke to their bubbies and Zadies, you probably talk to a lot of people who had a really hard, difficult life, but still managed to remain ethical and treat their families beautifully and do the right thing, even though the circumstances and the deck of cards wasn't, you know. And we're living in like a really weird time because notwithstanding what's going on to the Jewish people today, okay, because the world has changed. But until October 7th, we had it pretty good, you know, where the circumstances and the deck of cards were pretty amazing. And we're doing a lot more complaining. So I'm leaving you with this one message, which is take responsibility to try to look in and I'll just end with the line that, that the Torah tells us, um, actually, very, very beautiful, um, in, when he says, Lech Lecha, hang on one second, and by the way, the chapter has all these other studies, I didn't get a chance to put it in there, but, but um, hang on one second. Oh yeah, he, he, he basically it's lech lecha. When something wrong goes, when something goes wrong, um, the first place to try to look is within, and to have enough confidence in ourselves to say, you know what, maybe I'm not fully at fault, but some of the fault lies with me. Always think about that University of Pennsylvania study that I shared: top one percent, top bottom one percent. Think about that. How like the top one percent are always looking to get better and taking responsibility. That's an unbelievable message. And that I have the power to change my life. Maybe not all the circumstances, but that's not really what's so important in life. Now, I know we've been convinced that it is. We've been convinced that whoever dies with the most amount of toys wins. And that if I have more toys and more things, I'll be happier. And therefore, we spend all of our waking hours trying to change the deck when we should be spending more of our time, and that's why I thank you guys for coming here tonight, spending more of our time figuring out how to manipulate the deck, how to work the deck a little differently to be able to live a more moral and upright life. Because that's what the deck is. God doesn't care so much about the deck. He knows what he gave you. <laughs> He's fully aware of all the issues that you and I, the anxieties, the stresses. The question is, how do we somehow use that situation to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. Right? That's, I think that's one of the great goals of Judaism. And that's what the Torah is about, by the way. Every single mitzvah is meant to apply to a different circumstance in our life. And the wisdom of the Torah itself, as I tried to show tonight a little. Any questions or comments, please? It's hard to argue with, I guess, except when you feel like brainwashed by the society in which you live? Do I really have a choice? So what's the answer to the question I raised before? Do you have an answer for me? Do we hold these kids responsible? When? Meaning, I'm sorry? When? Meaning like, you know... In theory? I'm sorry? In theory? 
I guess in theory, but I guess, I mean, in practice. I mean, if, listen, the, 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 there is a big issue. The IDF is losing everyday right. soldiers. Right. Yeah. They wouldn't lose any soldiers if they just carpet bombed Gaza. But they, they're they not doing that because they believe there are a lot of innocents living there. I don't know if this is true, but, well, I don't know if this applies to what's going on in Gaza, but my uh, sister-in-law, she grew up in Iran. She has a lot of connections in Iran. No. She was telling me how, um, you know, in Muslim, like in, in Iran, since they follow Muslim law, if a father is Muslim and the kid is Muslim, we obviously don't have the same perspective. If the father is Muslim, the mother is Jewish, the kid is Jewish. But it goes to, it, it gets to a level where, it, and there's a Jewish community in Iran. If, if someone is born with a Muslim father, they can't even learn Judaism in Iran. It's not allowed. They would get the death penalty. And the Jewish community is kind of like, they have their hands tied because, you know, it's Muslim. So, I don't know if this applies to Gaza, but I was thinking, like, what Abraham was battling about in Sodom, it's hard to actually apply this right. in the world. It's like, it's like a lesson of, of like, you know, imagine how evil Sodom was. Imagine Abraham praying, praying for, for the people of Iran. Ten good people there. Maybe there's... But listen, when I, 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 I that is that is the Jewish attitude. When my kids were little, and we used to watch a lot of superhero stuff, my boys. So, like, you know, the, they were just waiting for, like, Batman... And Superman and Spider-Man just to kick the living daylights out of whoever the bad guy was. But we always, I used to try to have this conversation. We're like, what would we, re- what would be the best outcome? Well, so one of my kids would be like, that I get to watch Batman, you know, knock the living day. No, what's the best outcome? Is that the bad guy does tshuva? Right. Tshuva means to repent, to you know, to change. And that's kind of what we need. We need a big tshuva. Maybe that's the first step. We should pray for them. I daven for that. I don't just daven that. The I, right now I'm davening IDF takes out Hamas. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also praying that we can raise a new generation that doesn't hate us so much. Because unfortunately, it's not going to change if, if that doesn't change. Well, that's not going to happen until we start loving each other more. What happens on the other side? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of love right now, Baruch Hashem. I hope it'll stay. I, I want to bottle it. Like now, so that after Hamas is taken out of commission, and then the Jewish community in Israel starts talking to each other again about like what happened before. They already started to actually have these like um, campaigns, and yeah, until the yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. But I think it's okay for there to be a for you to speak your mind. It's just to do it in a way with a little more love. That's what we need. Um, yeah, any other comments or questions? It's a great issue. But th- this is the stuff that I think about because it's like, yeah. I think you have to daven for that at the same time you're davening for IDF soldiers because the war in Israel looks different than the war in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it really starts with people believing and wanting to see these simple narratives that... Jesus was born in West Bank, Palestine. It starts with that. Someone simply believing that and someone taking history completely out of context, saying right. that Jesus was born in in this part of Israel, which today is the West Bank, so technically it's Palestine. So technically Jesus is Palestinian. <laughs> so, but that's the history that they're creating. Right. And I think we have to doubt him for 
people to actually want to see facts, the history, the documents that are true, not yeah. just people taking things out of context. And that's also finding space within themselves yeah. to do teshuva. To yeah, we have to. Well, listen, we we are. We, we you said that very well. We are the people of the book. We're supposed to be educators. So besides davening Tashem, we are supposed to continue to speak the truth as we understand it and try to get people to, to learn history a little. It's extremely important. And that, that, you're right, that applies here in the United States. You know, that's, can we change our campuses? Because American Jewry is doomed. If the 20-year-olds today, if that's what they're believing today, so they're going to be the next members of Congress in 20 years. So, you know, so that, that's, that's a real, that's a real, you know. Yeah, we got our work cut out for us, but we can do that. I don't think they're all, I had literally last week, three MG participants called me up about close friends, relatives who are on the other side of this conflict, mm. who are posting free Palestine all the time. How do I deal with it? And I, all of them, they're all young. And I said, do not give up on your brother. Do not give up on your cousin because they're young. And they've been all co-opted, and they've been brainwashed one way, we can brainwash them the other way. You know? Please, God. I don't like to use that word. I want to welcome Kevin back from the Holy Land. Wish him a mazel tov. His brother just got married. How was the wedding? Oh, cool. What are you teaching? Uh, about Israel and how it relates to the Parsha. Oh, very nice. You can follow Kevin upstairs if you'd like. If you're a fellow, please remain. Thank you all. Wait, what's our class next week? We have one more. The secret to happiness. Happiness. Happiness, happiness next week. Come and you'll be thrilled. It's a pleasure, guys. Wait, what did I do with that sheet? I wrote down some names. Molly. Molly, can I ask you a question? Where are you this Shabbat? I've never had you all, but I'd love to have you all. Sure. Yeah? Did you come from here? Yeah? Yeah? Good. Good.